our theme for a while has been summarily speaking the relationship of the Christian to the law of God and I've been describing that relationship using the phrase gospel obedience we've seen that God in his word promises expects and requires obedience from every believer and we've also seen that gospel obedience, if that's what we're going to call it, is a, a helpful phrase because it reminds us that the obedience of a Christian to the law of God must come in that order only. It must be gospel first, then obedience, or the gospel rightly believed and applied will lead to and produce obedience. Never obedience in order to be saved, but always the gospel first. And when it's heard, when it's believed, when it is applied by the Holy Spirit, what we've seen is that will produce obedience. That will produce a, a, a lifestyle of, of walking according to the, the commands of God. Now last week, or, or two weeks ago rather, we saw that as we begin to set ourselves to obey... We have to be careful because there are wrong ways to obey. The first one we saw was self-righteousness. And Paul describes that attitude when he speaks of the Jewish people, his kinsmen, when he said that they were seeking to establish their own righteousness. And as they were doing that, they also, the other side of that coin was, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Now, the theme there, or the, the topic in that text was justification. What makes us right before God? The problem is usually in our obedience, we can drift into that way of thinking that as I obey, I must do this to stay right with God. And as soon as we begin to do that, we also reject, we, we, we stiff arm or we hold back the, the free righteousness that's imputed and promised to us by God, the righteousness of Christ. So we, can't, we, we, we have to guard against slipping into that way of thinking. The other error, the other wrong way of obedience, is self-power or trying to obey in our own strength. We can't do it. We saw that the Apostle Paul says in Romans 7, 18, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. In other words, he's saying, and this is true of every believer in the flesh, we can have all of we, we can conceive in the womb of our souls all the desire in the world to obey, but in our flesh we don't have the strength to bring that desire into the world. We can't make it happen. We don't have the strength. That's what Paul said. I don't have the ability. We also don't have the ability. So when we go about our obedience, we have to be careful that we're not obeying for self-righteousness. And we also have to be careful that we're not obeying out of self-power or self-strength. Then we took note fairly briefly that the right kind of obedience will actually remedy or it, it will oppose those two errors. That took us to the text that we, we read this morning, Galatians 2, 19 and 20, Paul says, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. That's what we're after. That's gospel obedience, living to God. That's what we want to do. Paul says, 
through the law, I had to die to the law so that I could then live, live that, that way, so that I could live to God. How did that happen? I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. In other words, right obedience cannot be out of self-righteousness or self-power. It must be, to, to summarize it, it must be an obedience out of faith. And what's true of the Apostle Paul is true of every Christian. We notice in that passage Paul's relationship to the law. For through the law I died to the law. As the law, if you're a Christian, as the law, as it at, at one point in your life hung over your head as a condemnation and a sentence of death, in that regard, the law is gone. You've been crucified to it. You've, you've died to the law. If you're not a Christian... The law of God hangs over your head as a sentence of death. Right now, you stand under the condemnation of God if you're not a Christian. But if you are a Christian, the law in that sense is gone. That's what he says, or what he means when he says, I died to the law. Then we saw Paul's relationship to God, so that I might live to God. Once all of that threatening power of the law is taken away, Christian you are able to now live a life fully pleasing to God without fear of condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation in our obedience. You say, my obedience is not perfect. No condemnation. So then obey. Live to God. Well, I'm afraid that if I, if I seek to obey, I'll fail. No condemnation. That's what, what the teaching is. That's our relationship to God. That, that, that way of living, we've died to that. So then... We're free to live to God. We saw Paul's relationship to Christ. This explains how that came about. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Our union with Christ is what brings all of this to reality. Christ's crucifixion was my crucifixion. If I look at the law of God, I say, if that's the standard, then I must die. Then I read the Scriptures. I did when He hung on the cross. When He breathed His last, that was my death because of the union with Christ. His death and crucifixion was our crucifixion and death because Christ has been raised. We have been raised so that spiritually now we live. And yet, we don't live alone. We don't have spiritual life of ourselves. That spiritual life is of Christ. It's Christ who is our life. He lives, and then by His Spirit, we live. So that we can say the life of Christ is the life of the Christian. The power of Christ is the power of the Christian. The condemnation of the law, which hangs over Christ's head right now, is your condemnation, which is what? No condemnation. He came out of the grave. He took the condemnation into the grave. He comes out for our justification. God is satisfied. The law was brought to bear against Him. He died to death. Therefore, no condemnation. That's our position before God because of Christ. Our union with Him. And then we saw Paul's life lived in light of that. How, how does he live? Does he say... I've, I've got all that I need from you, Jesus. Thank you very much, and I'll go on my way. No, he says, the life I now live 
in the flesh, I live by faith. That this daily life on the earth, every moment, every second, every hour, every day, every month, every year, in all of our endeavors, all of our working, everything we do, we are to be living by, according to, faith in the Son of God. It's only the life of faith which will correct the errors of self-righteousness and self-obedience. And this is where justification and sanctification are no different. They're both by faith. And so we, we drew out from that the doctrine of living by faith. Our subject is gospel obedience, which falls under the category of sanctification, the living, walking, and working throughout our lives. So then we must go about our gospel obedience, our living, walking, and working according to the commands of God by faith. How does a Christian live according to the commands of God? Yeah, but how? By faith. This does not mean, when we say that sanctification is by faith, this does not mean that we don't act at all. That's justification. In justification, God imputes it and declares it. It's done. We receive through faith. Sanctification is also through faith and by faith, and yet we cooperate with God. We do the living. We do the working and the walking with Him. We do it by faith. Just as the apostle lived his life in the flesh by faith in the Son of God, so every Christian must live their life by faith in the Son of God. That's a summary of, of last Lord's Day. Now, out of that, I want to I open that up a little further and answer three questions. First, what is faith? Secondly, faith in what? And then thirdly, how is it that we live by faith? That, that, that's, a, that's the third in a series of hows, right? How, how do I live according to the commandments of God? Well, how do I do that? By faith. Well, how do I actually live by faith? We're going to answer those three questions, but just the first one today. What is faith? If obedience is promised and expected and required and yet it can only properly be carried out by faith, then surely we would agree that we, that we need to understand what faith is. We have to have a, a right biblical conception of the idea of faith. Everybody who's a Christian talks about faith or claims to be a Christian talks about faith. As a matter of fact, people who don't claim to be Christians talk about faith because faith in itself to, to mankind apart from the biblical definition seems like a very virtuous thing. Thousands of sermons and messages are given about faith constantly and yet how often do, does anybody break down actually what we mean when we say faith. Because Christians mean something completely different than the world means. And very often, the Bible means something very different than what most Christians mean because they get their definition from the world. Faith is often equated with this idea of, of just striking out against all the odds and, and trusting that God will be with you or living some sort of radical life that everybody watches you and they sort of scratch their heads at the things that you do because you're so... Uh, settled or convinced of, of an unseen uh, reality or, or spiritual matters. Well, in contrast to that, if we take a more biblical approach, we often define faith 
in very concise ways to save time. We say things like faith is trusting in or believing the promises of God. Faith is acting upon the revealed will of God. Faith is looking away from self to God. We say things like that. And, and brief definitions like that are helpful if you're trying to be quick, if you're not trying to settle down and take the time to really dig into all that that means. But there's actually more to what the Bible means by faith than even those statements can convey. In statements like that, trusting or believing in the promises of God, acting upon the revealed will of God, looking away from self to God, statements, when we make statements like that, we're actually using the term faith in the place of the fruits of faith, which is, according to biblical language is, and just linguistics, that's not a wrong way to speak. We do this often. But the Bible also assumes that we're going to read the 66 books of the canon and put it all together to understand the deeper meaning. It would actually be better to say, because there is faith, one believes and trusts the promises of God. Because there is faith, one acts upon the revealed will of God. Or because there is faith, one looks away from himself or herself unto God. Faith is what used to be called a habit. A habit is a disposition of your soul. A, a habit is the arrangement of, we could say, the arrangement of the furniture inside your soul. The, the, the bent of your mind and will was, was called, used to be called a habit. Nowadays, going back to what we said about faith, nowadays we typically call the fruit of the habit the habit. So we might say, she has the habit of biting her fingernails. Okay, biting your fingernails is not the habit. Biting your fingernails is the evidence that inside your mind and your heart and something in, is going on with you that is causing you to then do that. That inner working of the soul and the mind, that's a habit. That's actually the habit. But we describe it by its manifestation. He or she has the habit of biting their fingernails, etc. Nail biting doesn't come from nowhere. It comes from a habit, a disposition an arrangement inside your mind and your heart and your will that's causing you, maybe it's just out of muscle memory or something, your hand just goes up and that's what you do in your free time. It's the same way. We often refer to the effects of faith as faith. While true faith is a habit, faith is a disposition of the soul. Faith is a particular arrangement of the mind, of the affections, of the will. I, I, I should probably say the intellect, the affections, the will, the, the faculties of the soul. Now in Christian teaching, I have often used, it's often uh, worded this way, we typically use the term graces as short for gracious Habits. It's, it's, it's short. For, in other words, uh, a grace is a habit, a disposition of the soul, worked in us by the Holy Spirit. So we call it a gracious habit or 
a grace, the graces. So in that sense, we say faith is a grace. Faith is a gracious habit, or faith is a habit. Faith is a disposition, an arrangement of the faculties of the inner man in the soul. Now, our confession doesn't really make an attempt to give a plainly stated definition of faith, but it does help us to see that faith is a lot deeper and wider than what the world often calls faith. Listen to how our confession speaks of faith. The grace of faith, whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls, is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word, by which also, and by the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, prayer and other means appointed of God, it is increased and strengthened. Now notice faith was not defined. It didn't say faith is this. It, it told us several things about faith. First, faith is a grace. Notice, the grace of faith. It's a grace or a gracious habit, a disposition of the soul, the heart, the mind, the intellect. Faith enables the elect to believe. Now this is where it really gets tricky with English language. Believing is an act of the, the mind and the heart produced by faith. Now, in our language, we typically use them as uh, synonymous, which is actually accurate. Someone might say, I, I thought faith was believing. Well, that's true if you take the fruit for the habit itself. Faith causes us to believe. But in the biblical language, there's really just one series of root words that all, it would be one thing. We, we might say, uh, whoever faiths on the Son of God has eternal life. But we use different English words. Believing is actually an act produced by faith. Faith is the work of the Spirit of Christ in the heart. It's the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ who produces faith. The Spirit disposes and arranges the heart and mind and gives faith. So we can think of it like this. The Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ comes in uh, to dwell within the believer and inside the soul there, is, there are the faculties. We typically say the intellect, the heart, the affections. But let's just, let's just call it the furniture of the soul. The Holy Spirit comes into the furniture of the soul or comes into the soul and opens the door and all of the furniture is facing itself. Every, everything is facing inwardly, but there's this big bay window at the front of the living room, and outside of that window is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and all of the emanations and effulgences and, and revelations of who God is. The Holy Spirit comes in, takes all of the furniture of the soul, and turns it to where it's all facing right out that big bay window and looking at God. It, it disposes everything Godward. That's That's faith. Faith is the work of the Spirit of Christ in the heart. This is why we can say that faith is a gift from God and you must believe. I can say both of those. God does not believe for you. God works the habit of faith in the soul by which we then believe. We exercise our faith when we believe. God will not Believe for us. He commands us to believe. And He also works in the soul, the grace of faith. Now, all of that sounds very interesting. The question is, is it actually biblical? Is that what the Bible teaches? I would argue that it is biblical. And so would Thomas Manton. I've referenced him before. His sermons on Hebrews 11, specifically 
The first four on Hebrews 11, 1, I have read, reread, marked up, reread again to try to wash my mind of all of the unbiblical things I've heard about faith and to try to comprehend the, the way that the apostle describes faith in Hebrews 11.1. 1. We read in Hebrews 11.1, 1, and you can turn there if you're not already there. You can have that open. We'll, we'll stay in Hebrews now for the most part. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The authorized version or King James Version says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now I'm going to lean very heavily on Thomas Manton's exposition. And since he used the authorized version, I'm going to use those two words specifically, substance and evidence, over against assurance and conviction. I do know why they, those words were translated differently, and I think they can be helpful. They can also be confusing. So I'm going to use substance and evidence as the apostle is describing, defining, helping us to understand what is faith. He says, it's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now before we get to that verse, notice what is happening in the book of Hebrews. Picking up in verse 32 of chapter 10. But recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle and sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that your, you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Notice what we're talking about is sanctification. These are Christians after they had been enlightened. Notice that he said that. Remember the former days after you had been enlightened. In other words, after you were saved. He's not talking about how to get saved. He's saying, you're, you're already saved. He's describing how they have to live. And he says, he actually quotes Habakkuk 2, 3, and 4, which we read last week. My righteous one shall live by faith. Or elsewhere it's translated, the just shall live by faith. The same text from Habakkuk is quoted in the New Testament to defend justification by faith and sanctification by faith, which shows us it's the same faith and the same object of faith by which we're justified and by which we're sanctified. So the subject here is sanctification, the lives of the saints lived out in faith. Now after Hebrews 11.1, 1, we go into that long list of people and places and activities described or describing the people of faith. By faith we understand the universe was created by the Word of God. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. By faith Noah 
In reverent fear constructed an ark. By faith Abraham obeyed. By faith he went and lived in the land of promise. By faith Sarah herself received the power to conceive. By faith Abraham offered up Isaac. By faith Isaac invoked the future blessings. By faith Jacob blessed each of the sons of Joseph. By faith Joseph made mention of the Exodus. By faith Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh. He considered the reproaches of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. By faith he left Egypt. By faith he, left the, he, he kept the Passover, sprinkled the blood. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea. In other words, we see this long line of people who, because this faith was existent in them, because this was the disposition of their soul, they then acted. They did things. So the faith that's being addressed here is the same faith that's being addressed in Galatians 2. It's the kind of faith by which the Christian lives their whole life as a believer. Also note, again, that faith is always manifested itself or, or always manifests itself in some action. But the action is not faith. By faith, they act. The act is not the faith. It's the evidence of the faith. We could even say even the act of the will in believing is an act produced by faith, as we said earlier. The effects are displayed throughout this chapter. Now, here's, here's the point of that. After addressing the suffering Hebrew Christians and saying, here's how you ought to live, and just before that long list of the faithful that had preceded them, he, he comes in to describe the faith that he's talking about. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. This is what we're talking about. Following, again, Manton's exposition. Very, very helpful and puritanical. Number one, we have the thing described. Now faith is. We're talking about faith. The word pistis, the common word for faith throughout the New Testament. Then we have, secondly, the description of the thing. The substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. This is what faith is. Now listen to some other translations. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Faith is the assurance of what we hope for. The certainty of what we do not see. Faith is the certainty of the things hoped for. The proof of things not seen. If, if anything, we learn as English translators are trying to, to, to translate this... The, the translation is often so difficult, we, we, we don't wonder why there aren't very many sermons opening this up. And no wonder it takes me three and four readings of, of, of a sermon to understand what's happening here. They're all trying to convey the meanings of these words. What is faith? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. First, substance. Faith is the substance. The word here is hypostasis. If we were reading it, it would look like hypostasis. It means literally to stand under. But it means figuratively the ground or the bedrock or the foundation or the essential structure or being of a thing is its hypostasis. 
This is why when we hear the word hypostasis, we think of the hypostatic union, mentioned in using this word in Hebrews 1. The union of the two uh, basic essences or natures in the one person, Jesus Christ. The, the, uh, the nature, the divine nature, the bedrock, the foundation, the essence of God, united with the essence of a man, the bedrock, the nature, the being of a man in one person. That's Christ, the hypostatic union. That's the same word, hypostasis. Sometimes we use the word subsistences. That's the word our confession uses. It comes from Hebrews 1. Now this term was used to denote the title or deed to land. Now this is where we're going to have to just follow the, the, the etym etymological map here. If you have the, the deed to land, whether you're on that land or, or away, the deed shows that that parcel is yours. It's your land. So imagine that you inherit some land in Oregon. Because it was left to you, the deed being signed in your name, whether you ever set foot there or not, whether you ever go there and mark it off as yours or not, whether you ever go to that parcel land and, and rub your hands all over it and say, this is mine and mine and mine and mine, whether you ever do any of that, the deed in your hand says, it's my land. You never have to go there. You never have to see it. It's yours. Because you have the hypostasis. You have the deed. You have the thing which substantiates your ownership of that land. The substance of ownership is not that you're there, just like at your house. When you leave, it doesn't become open game to anybody else. The substance of your ownership is the deed. It's yours. You leave, still yours. You're there, still yours. You leave for 12, 15, 20 years, still yours, as long as the deed is in your name. That's the picture here. Faith is the substance. Faith is the hypostasis. Faith is the, the deed of what? It says, the substance of things hoped for. Things hoped for. Romans 8, Paul says, Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Things hoped for cannot be seen. That is, they cannot be apprehended by the physical senses. And things hoped for are waited for with patience. In other words, their future. Things hoped for are things still to be apprehended by the physical senses at some point in the future. So faith is the substance, the deed of things that cannot be apprehended by the physical senses until some point in the future. There are things that God has promised that are still future. Do we believe that? There are things that cannot possibly be presently apprehended by the physical senses that God has promised. These things, we wait for them with patience. Right? Why in the world would you wait for them? Because of faith. Faith is the substance of them. Faith substantiates the things hoped for. 
Faith is the disposition of our minds and our hearts which leads us to treat still future things as if they're already in our possession. Never seen them, never been there, don't, but they're mine. Why? Because you've got the hypostasis. You've got the deed. You've got the faith. Though we've never seen them, we have the deed to them. Faith in the soul is the deed to things still hoped for. Faith in the heart, or by faith in the heart, it is as if things hoped for are already present. By things, or by faith, things hoped for have a being. That's Manton. Just as the Holy Spirit is the personal earnest down payment or guarantee of our inheritance, that's Ephesians 1, so also the chief of the graces given by the Holy Spirit, faith, is the way that we come to know and own in our own souls that that inheritance is ours. The Spirit is the guarantee. The Spirit works faith by which we come to own those things of which He is the guarantee. We might understand this point by illustrating it by one of the opposites of faith, knowing things by the physical senses. This is not faith. But think about how this works. If you know a person or if you've spoken to them or you've met them, you've seen them, you've shaken their hands, then when you leave their presence, they still have a real existence in your mind. They don't cease to exist in conception just because you're not in their presence. Having met them and experienced them by the physical apprehensions, they, have, they, they get a place in your mind. We, often, we, we say when, when somebody is um, bugged about somebody, they'll say, well, they're, they're living rent-free in your mind. You know, you just need to move on. That's because they have a real conception. It's, it's really there in your mind mentally. With faith as the substance of things hoped for, though we do not act with or interact with the promises of God with the physical senses, they still have a real established existence in the soul, in the mind, in the heart, in the affections. Think about this. Have you ever experienced in any physical way the second coming of Christ? Hopefully we would say no. And yet are you waiting for it? Are you waiting patiently? Why? You've never experienced it. Nobody you know has ever experienced it. You've never experienced anything like it. You've never seen it. You've never seen a picture. Never seen a video. And yet, here you are, waiting patiently. You know it's coming. That's because of faith. By faith, the second coming of Christ is as sure to us as if it happened yesterday. We know it's coming, but we don't question. Have you ever had a glorified body? We say no. And yet, are you excited about having a glorified body? Are you patiently enduring present suffering, thinking from time to time, well, this will end soon and I'll have a glorified body? Why? You've never met anybody with a glorified body. You've never seen a glorified body. You can't even describe a glorified body. I can't describe it. Why, why are you waiting for it? It's because of faith. You, it, it's as sure to us as if we already had it, as if we've seen them all the time. Have you ever stood in the final judgment? We say, no, I've never... Never experienced that. Then why do you measure your life every day in light of the reality of that coming day? 
You've never seen a judgment day, never experienced it. You don't know anybody who's ever lived a judgment day. And yet for some reason as you live, you're keeping in your mind, I'm going to give an account for the things I'm doing in the body. It's coming. The day is coming as if it were yesterday. Have you ever walked the whole earth as your inheritance with the rest of Christ's meek ones? Say, no, I trespass on somebody's property. They usually run me off. I'm not supposed to be on other people's property. Then why, why are you able to be so content with a little parcel of land now? It's because of faith. Because you know one day, and I, like, I, I love saying this, one day the whole thing's going to be ours. The whole thing. It's, it's, as, it's as good ours as if we already had it all. By faith you already own it. It's as real in your heart as the lands that we own now. These things hoped for, we cannot see, and yet they're real to us. And that disposition of the soul in which hoped for things have a real existence within us is called faith. Now, do we struggle with unbelief at times? Of course. Of course we do. But what do you do when you struggle? Think about this. What do you do when you struggle? You go to the God you've never seen and you talk to Him and you ask Him to forgive you for your weakening in the apprehension of things you've never seen. Why would you do that? That is absurd to the world. I've never seen them. I struggle to conceive them. I'm struggling with unbelief. God who I've never seen, would you help me to correct this weakness in me? That's faith. That's what faith does. What more proof do you need that faith has been implanted in your soul? Now, what kind of lives do people live when the things that they've been promised, though they cannot see them, are as real to them as if they've seen them every day? Well, you build an ark. I'm going to flood the earth with rain. Rain. Right. Water out of the sky. Right. Never seen it. Never heard of it. Never seen pictures of it. Never seen videos of rain. And yet I'm going to flood the whole earth. What do you do? Well, you, you get to building. You start cutting wood and getting ready. You head toward Canaan. You lay your son on the altar. Those people acted in obedience to God. In this way, faith as the substance of things hoped for deals with the will of a man. Those things which are hoped for draw out the heart and the will after them so that we begin to desire towards and act towards the things that God has revealed. The apostle says of the faithful, this is Hebrews 11, 13 to 16, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. Notice what it said. These all died in faith. Now, you might think, Someone hears these, these supposed promises from God and they live their whole life following after these promises. They get to their deathbed. We know the patriarchs, many of them died with clarity of mind. They knew that they were about to close their eyes in death. You might think that in those final moments they would say, well, <laughs> I guess I got fooled. 
didn't get the promises. All that time I lived and followed and all, and, and here we are, it's clear it wasn't true. I renounced my faith. But this says they died in faith. They closed their eyes and with the disposition in their souls that the promises were still real. They, were, they knew they were going to open their eyes to the promises of God because of faith. Those promises had a real substance within them. The promises were as real to them as sight and a handshake. I know, I know. And they closed their eyes knowing the promises were theirs. They died in faith. God had prepared for them a city. A city they never saw, they never entered, they never seen it on a postcard. And yet because of the promises of God, they said, we're strangers and exiles on the earth. This is not our home. You ever been to another planet? Well, no. You know anybody else who's ever lived anywhere else? Well, no. Well, then where are you from? Well, my citizenship is in a heavenly city. I'm seeking a homeland. Well, why don't you just go back to your homeland? No, not that one. My real homeland. They said, we've seen Canaan. Now we're ready for the real thing. Amen. The heavenly country prepared for us by God. It was real to them. The promises of God had a real existence in their heart which caused them to apprehend and speak and seek and desire. Their will was drawn out by this disposition. The existence of things hoped for in the soul is called faith. Faith is a gracious habit in the soul. Faith enables people to believe upon God. Faith is the product of the Spirit of Christ. Next, we see that faith is the evidence of things not seen. Now stick with me here. It's going to get good. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. The word evidence means proof. Some would translate the word argument or demonstration in, in, in the old classical language of an argument. Not that your, your, your brow is furred and you're yelling at somebody, but you're, you're reasoning back and forth. Here's what I believe. Well, here's what I believe. Well, here's why I believe this. Well, here's why I believe this. And you go back and forth, back and forth, until one of them runs out of, of proofs and he says, I concede the argument. You have won. That's the, the picture of the word here. It deals with the understanding. The other word deals with the will, substance. Here the word is dealing with our intellect. If we use the term as we hear it often as it's used in a courtroom, evidence deals with what can be verified with the mind. We bring the, this piece of evidence, this piece of evidence, this piece of evidence. The jury says, well, based on those three things, I then reason and conclude guilty or not guilty. When the mind is sufficiently satisfied with a particular piece of evidence, we become convinced. The old word for convinced was convicted. That's why we would say faith is the conviction of things not seen. It's, it's very similar. When evidence does its job, the mind is convinced or convicted that the matter cannot be any way other than what the evidence concludes. The same term is used in Titus 1.9 when Paul says that an elder must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Again, the authorized version uses the word to convince the gainsayers that they're teaching wrongly. The elder has to be able to say, I hear what you say, and here's the Word of God, and this is why you're wrong. And they come back. Well, then he goes back. No, this is, and there's a reasoning. Bringing them to the point where they say, I, have, I've, I've, I must release my beliefs. You have convinced me. Convincing the gainsayers. When it's finished, it's clear 
to the understanding of all honest parties that they're wrong. That's argument. That's the idea behind the word evidence. Faith is the evidence of things hoped for. Faith is the conviction. Faith is the disp disposition of the soul in which it becomes satisfied by the argumentation presented and that, that reality can be no other than that which has been presented. Now the text, this is where we, we really have to think, because the text does not say... Once the evidence is presented and the mind considers all of the evidence and becomes satisfied by that evidence, then you will exercise faith and believe the evidence. It doesn't say that. It says faith is the evidence. You see the difference? Faith is the evidence. Faith is not what you conclude because of the evidence. Faith is the evidence. Again, Manton, he says, True faith is an evidence or convincing light concerning eternal verities, or verities means truths. Faith is an evidence or convincing light concerning eternal truths. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. Now, what are the things not seen? That's a broader category than things hoped for. Things hoped for are always future. Things not seen can be past, present, or future. God's working in providence that we learned about last Lord's Day is not seen. We see the effects of it, but we don't see God orchestrating and, and decreeing and planning. We just see what happens. It's unseen. Christ's intercession at the right hand of the Father is not seen. The work of grace in our hearts is not seen. Pardoning mercy is not seen. Since faith is evidence or proof, and proof requires presentation of truth and argument, then here is where the mind of the Christian engages most actively with the Word of God. The Word of God presents the information. Then faith receives that information and approves, is satisfied with it. As Paul says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. So, though I cannot see God working in providence, the Scriptures tell me that He works all things according to the counsel of His will. Though I cannot see Christ making intercession for me, the Scriptures say that He ever lives to make intercession for me. Though I cannot see the work of grace in me, the Scriptures say that I'm being transformed from one degree of glory to another by the Spirit of Christ. Though I cannot see God pardoning my sins, the Scriptures tell me that if I will confess my sins, He is faithful and just to forgive me of my sins. These, these are things that I cannot see. But because the Spirit has wrought faith in my soul, when I read the Scriptures, they are met with agreement. My mind is satisfied with what is written and I am convinced. I don't read the Scriptures that say God works all things according to the counsel of His will and say, I don't know about that. I'm going to need a little bit of proof. No, I say, that's what it says. The Scriptures say Christ ever lives to make intercession. I don't think, I don't, I don't read that and, and say, that just seems a little odd, don't you think? I mean, how can that possibly be that He's in the heavens? Is He praying? Is it just His wounds? What is making the intercession? I don't do that. I say, yes, He's making intercession. I, I agree. Uh, I can't see God pardoning my sins, but when I read 
God is faithful and just to forgive me of my sins if I will confess them. I don't disbelieve that. I do what it says. I confess my sins. What are other things that are not seen? Things of the past are not seen. The incarnation of the Son of God is not seen. The perfect life of Jesus Christ is not seen to us. The crucifixion of Jesus is not seen to us. The resurrection of Jesus is not seen to us. The ascension of Jesus is not seen to us. These were all things that happened in time, historical events that we did not see. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. When I read in the Word of God that Jesus Christ hung on the cross with nails in His hands and feet with a crown of thorns on His head, I don't think this just seems a little extreme. No, I believe it. I can't think any other than that I'm reading the truth of the Word of God. It's met with agreement. Why? Because of faith. Principles of doctrine are also things unseen. That is not only the events of history, but what they mean for us. The devil believes the events of history. He was there. He does not believe and, and cast himself upon their true meaning. The necessity of the incarnation and in our salvation so that Christ could obey and suffer as a man in our place is an unseen doctrine. I can't see that. And yet it must be believed if we are to be saved. The substitutionary nature of Christ's life and death as the offering introduced to reconcile us to God is unseen. And yet I must believe that if I'm to be saved. The resurrection of Christ for our justification, the ascension of Christ to the right hand of God the Father as Lord and King of His church, these things cannot be seen by the eye and yet they must believe or must be believed. They must be met with faith if we are to be saved. The Christian hears of these things, the historical realities and the doctrinal meaning of them. And as we listen, whether we're, whether we're reading or whether it's in a sermon, we bring them in and as we listen and we roll these things around in our mind and we consider them, they become undeniable truths to us. We cannot deny their truthfulness. Though we might struggle with our conception of them, we never refuse to believe we say, I'm having a hard time believing that. We don't say, God fixed the truth. We say, God fixed me. We see the problem is in us, not the undeniable truth. That's what faith does when we receive the revelation of God. Faith is the very evidence that these things are true. The light which convinces us of their truthfulness. Quoting Manton, Beza says, in rendering this place, he had rather paraphrase the text than obscure the scope. In other words, Theodore Beza said, it's kind of hard to understand what's being said here. He interpreted it thus, Faith substantiates or gives substance to our hopes and demonstrates things not seen. That's faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The obvious question of application is, do you have this faith? Not the, the, the blind leap faith of the world that says, well, I'm just going to step out and do something foolish. Not the step out and be radical in your life type of faith. Not the, well, yeah, I consider myself a spiritual person kind of faith. Not that. 
Do you have faith as God the Holy Spirit has defined it in Hebrews 11.1? 1? The, the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Six questions to, to help examine yourself. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Or we could say, examine yourself to see whether this faith is in you. Number one, do you already enjoy things hoped for? Do you already enjoy things hoped for? Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Where there is a real existence in the soul of the future promises of God, especially of eternal life and the beatific vision, that's going to stir real joy. Faith makes us glad. So do you have that? Do you have that, that ability to enjoy and rejoice in things that are hoped for? Not pretended joy, but real joy. Happiness in the heart and gladness when you think of things like, I will see Jesus face to face. He will open the skies. He will descend in fiery judgment. He will destroy every enemy. I will be forever with the Lord. Does that make you glad? Does that ever... just Not, not that you live in this constant state of grinning. And, but when, you, when you meditate upon these things, has, has there ever been an experience of, wow, there is a rejoicing. These things are... It's as if it already was. That's evidence of a true faith. Number two, is your mind often turned away from present and sensible circumstances to that which isn't present or seen? Do you find your mind often running into the courts of heaven or in the age to come? Do you find your soul often diverting and conversing with the realities of the work of the Spirit in your salvation? Things like sanctification and mortification of sin and, and walking in righteousness and those things you can't see but you're just you're living in them. This is, is that your world? You find yourself considering men, women, boys and girls according to the unseen realities of their eternal souls. David said in Psalm 73, 17, I went into the sanctuary of God. There I discerned their end. In other words, after studying all that he could see with his eyes, his, fine was, or his mind was finally taken to what he could not yet see, but what would be their end. 2 Corinthians 5.11, Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Is your mind often taken away from considering people just according to the flesh? And you begin to think about the awful terrors of hell that are coming upon the people you're talking with if they do not repent and trust in Christ. Does your mind often go into those things that aren't seen and aren't present? Number three, can you find true comfort in your soul from considering future or unseen things? Are you put at ease to know Christ will return? Does it, does it calm you to know that all of His enemies will be vanquished? Does the hope of the redemption of your body and the inheritance of the earth actually settle you? Is that where you go in your mind to be put at rest? Things you've never seen, things you've never experienced, and yet they're revealed in the Word of God, and you say, as, as my mind goes there, I'm at rest. David could say in Psalm 16, 11, In your presence there is fullness of joy. 
And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Not there will be fullness of joy. Not there will be pleasures. There are. Right now, there are pleasures at the right hand of God. That's where my mind goes to be comforted. The pleasures at the right hand of God. After discussing the return of Christ, Paul said, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. We ought to be encouraged and comforted and put at ease to think that Christ will return. It doesn't just go for things to come, hope for things. It goes for unseen realities right now, Paul says. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. He says, I know what I can feel. My outer self is wasting away. It takes no faith to recognize you're getting old. Your bones are creaking. Your back is creaking. Your back is sore. Oh, you don't, you don't, that takes no faith. You know it. He says, I know that, and yet I also know what I cannot see. My inner man is getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And that's where his mind went. My outer self is wasting away, and yet I take comfort that the inner man is actually getting stronger. You find any comfort in these words? That though your body is wasting away, your inner man is getting stronger. That Christ will return and take us to Himself. And there we'll find fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. If that is true, if you can say that really does, honest to goodness, calm my soul. That's an evidence of a true faith. Number four, are you able to notice the work of Christ in other people and recognize its divine origin and spiritual work on you? We can't see the Spirit working in other people. We can see its fruits, but we can't see the Spirit actually working in people. But we can recognize His effects. And God will often use the Spirit's work in other people to strengthen us, which is also an invisible work. Paul could say, for even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. Again, doesn't take any faith to notice that. I'm sore. I'm hurting. Everybody's after me. He says, But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by His coming, but also by the comfort with which He was comforted by you. In other words, God was using people to comfort people, to do things inside of them that were contrary to what they were experiencing in reality. Paul says, God comforted us with Titus. And then God comforted us when we realized how comforted Titus was when he was with you. And though our bodies had no rest and we were afflicted, we found comfort in what God was doing to us through other people. How often have you been with brothers and sisters in Christ and recognized, and maybe even brought to your mind, in that moment, you've thought, God the Holy Spirit is using this person right this moment to encourage me, to strengthen me, to edify me. You couldn't see it. That's an unseen thing. But you knew it. And you accredited it. You attributed the work to God. Maybe we should confess that reality more often. In, let me, in a conversation. Well, let me just stop you right there. Just so you know, as you're speaking right now, you're blessing my soul. Continue. That might be, get kind of awkward. But I, I thought about that this week. I, I, I honestly sat and thought. And I can say, either in the very moment or after the fact, there is not one single brother or sister of this congregation that I have not come to this conclusion through them. 
Again, in direct interaction or later on, I've, I've realized God the Almighty was using that brother, that sister, to encourage me, to strengthen me, to help me. I knew it. And I didn't think, well, that's weird. I, I feel uh, a little tingly because of the... I didn't think that. My, my mind, my heart said, God's doing that. And that, there was no question about what was happening. If you have that sense of faith and you're able to recognize that invisible work of God, that is an evidence of true faith. Number five, are you able to find true contentment in God's work in providence even when that doesn't mean present ease for you? God is the God of providence, but oftentimes providence does not mean that our lives get easier. It often means they get harder. And in those times when they get harder... Can you rest content with this fact? God is working all things. Like we heard last week, I'm content. God's working. David could say in Psalm 23, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. He didn't say, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, because I can get through this. It's going to be better when I get out. He didn't say that. He said, you, God that I cannot see, with rod and staff that I cannot see, you are here with me now, and therefore I fear no evil. In that moment, he tells us in Psalm 55, Cast your burden on the Lord and He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Is that, is that a reality? Just throw it on Him. If that's true, then you have evidence that your faith is true faith. And then sixthly, taking it a step further, are you able to sit under the heavy hand of God's darkest providences in your life and look up to Him and say, My God, my God. Can you do that? Some of you think that you are either of the weakest faith or no faith at all because there are seasons in your life where day after day you come and you open up God's Word and you read it and you finish and it might, has, might as well have been a, a, a billboard for a lawyer on the side of the interstate. You can acknowledge the words and you just keep on going. Who, who, who reads those? It's there, but nothing happened. You affirm the words, but no change is made. You read, but you hear nothing. You see nothing. You feel nothing. And it crushes you. And so you pray, God, what is wrong with me? Why does it seem that every time I come to drink from this fountain, it seems that either the well is dry or I have nothing with which to draw water? And so you conclude, I guess I don't have that saving faith or... or at best, I have a weak faith that is about to die. That's, that, those are some of those dark experiences of the soul that we have, not to mention tragedies of life, very dark things. But you conclude that, that your faith must be the weakest sort. Well, let me explain to you from the perspective of an outsider what just happened in those, in those instances. Again, you, you came to a book that you didn't write. And you open it up and you began to read it. This book claims to be the Word of God. You read it. You've never seen this God. You didn't write this book. It came into your possession through providence. And here you're reading. You read the revelation of this God you've never seen. 
You read of events for which you were not present and nobody living was present. You read of doctrines and truths that you cannot see. And because you were not moved in your spirit by it, the substance of things to come and the evidence of things not seen so gripped your soul that you actually in heart and mind, maybe even audibly, verbally, lashed out in a holy, sorrowful outrage that you did not presently experience the things hoped for and unseen. And that's the whole point of hoped for, unseen things. You don't get a a, a sense and a feeling all the time. But then what did you do? You, You cried out. My God, my God, what is happening? Why is this? Listen, people who have no faith don't do that. People who have no faith would read it and they would say, just as I suspected, a useless book of ancient fables. Nothing. Yet the people of God, they close it and they weep. Why, God? Why have I not heard? Why am I not moved? What is happening? Where are you? Don't draw away. Don't don't withdraw your spirit from me. Come near. Be not far away. In your own cry of dereliction, you substantiate the things hoped for and evidences of things not seen in your own heart. That's what you're doing. That is faith acting. Be encouraged. God our Father is sure to do whatever is necessary to strengthen the chief of graces that we call faith. He'll do whatever it takes to make your faith grow. And if that means He withdraws Himself, if that means He gives you seasons of dryness so that you cry out, He'll do it. Because it causes you to cry out more and more and your faith is getting stronger and stronger and stronger. You say, well, it's hard. Right. It is hard. Herman Bavinck says, there is no faith without struggle. To believe is to struggle. To struggle against the appearance of things. Thankfully, we know whom we have believed. We know that He is our help in this struggle. Even our faith is not to be carried out in self-power and self-strength. He is the one who gives and strengthens and, and helps our faith to grow. So let's go to Him in prayer that He do this for us. If you had to answer the question, what is the greatest act of faith recorded in the Scriptures? From Genesis to Revelation, you can take in Noah building the ark and Abraham leaving his homeland. All of the, the, the great acts of faith, if you, if you put them all together, which do you think would be the absolute pinnacle example of true faith? Faith. Now, I I believe it's true. I'm sure it's been said. Faith is often measured by the extent of apparent opposition or the opposition of appearances, we should say. The greater the opposition to the appearances, the greater the faith needed to overcome those appearances because faith is... Is, is not by sight. It's not by appearances. What would be the greatest? I suggest the greatest act of faith in all of Scripture was when Jesus Christ hung on the cross and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
not justifying faith or saving faith like we think of it, even though it is of the same substance, but a faith which overcome all, overcame all appearance, all, all perception. The sky was darkened. He cries out the cry of dereliction. I don't think he was saying, let me quote for you a psalm right quick. I think he meant, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why has your blessed shining face of blessedness turned from me so that now all I experience is eternal wrath for sins that I have not committed? None of us will ever experience a sorrow or a darkness or a dark providence in our lives darker than those three hours that Christ endured. And yet, in that moment, He cried out, My God, my God, I know you're there. I know you're God. I know you're my God. I know you've not gone away. Why? Why must I endure this? He, he overcame what was a clear and even physical manifestation of the, the withheld, withdrawing, withdrawn presence of God. And He endured the outpouring, the positive wrath of God. And yet He didn't say, that's it, I've had enough. I'm not taking this from you anymore. I've endured all I can for these wicked people. I'm not doing it. He didn't say that. He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So as we come to the Lord's Supper, obviously our attention is to be aimed at the cross. And what was happening? Christ was enduring the wrath of God in the place of sinners. And at the same time, He was exercising the fullness of of the grace of faith worked in Him by the very same Holy Spirit as we have, that fullness of faith in our place so that in those times when we say, I'm under a dark providence and I don't want to cry out, my God, my God. I've failed many times to attribute the things to God that ought to be attributed to Him. I've not done as I should. My faith has not been strong. God says, your standing in my presence is not because your faith has been strong. It's because His faith was strong. He exercised the fullness of perfection of all of the graces as our substitute in our place. And so we go to Him. Even when our faith is weak and we say, Lord, my faith is weak. And so I, I ask that you charge my weak faith upon the Christ who hung and died for me, whose faith was never weak, never weakened one ounce in all of His sufferings. So use that as a meditation as the elements are passed and then we'll come to the Lord's table together.